Savior to carry our head and our heart, knowing that there's a river that runs between it. Welcome to Worship Church. My name is Andy Maddock. I'm so blessed uh, to be the lead pastor here at Valencia United Methodist Church and to be able to share this time with you as we explore God's Word in the new year together. Wrestling with Doubt, Finding Faith is an all-church study that a number of our small groups are participating in. We also have books available uh, through our staff, or it's a Kindle, you can get it electronically. It's written by Reverend Adam Hamilton as a response two years ago to the questions that he asked of his church. Be you agnostic, atheist, or practicing Christian, what are the questions that ring true for you in a season of doubt? And so having asked his substantial church in Leewood, Kansas, what their deep questions of doubt were, he took the top five answers and developed them into six chapters in his book. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to deal with some big questions together. I said during the announcement of Christmas Eve that this is not a series where I'm going to invite you to check your brain at the door. I want you to bring your heart and your head to this process and to be a faithful people, to ask good questions of ourselves and of God, and to maybe try and find some faithful answers in the midst of it. I'll communicate up front and be honest about it. I'm not wired such to be a Christian apologist. Uh, I'm not going to give you all of the uh, ammo that you need to shoot down the skeptics in your life. What I will do is offer my kind of primitive and simple understanding of who God has been over the last 46 years of my goofy life and how I see God manifest in you. But before we do that, I want to talk about why this whole series wrestling with doubt in the first place. Um, Coming off the joy of Christmas and the celebration of light and life and the gift of the Christ child to us, I wanted to provide an opportunity for us to have some good and powerful time together to ask some good questions, and to ultimately come out the other side as we prepare for Lent and Easter with a deeper sense of faith in the midst of it. And when we talk about why doubt, the first answer you have to come to is that doubt is necessary. Asking good questions is essential. It's how we learn, it's how we develop, and it's ultimately how we are able to make a shift and change in our pattern and practice in life, right? Being able to ask the question, Does this thing line up with my faith and belief system? Does this choice, does this practice, does this morality? And when it does not, to figure out where in that tension there should be some give, some adaptation, and some faithful work. Wrestling with doubt is a necessary practice. It's how we decide what is true. To weigh and to value the truth claims of Scripture and our life and our practice. And in the Methodist Church, we have a method, it's where our name comes from, we're very pragmatic, that helps us to understand how we might approach these questions of ethics, life, and belief. We call it the quadrilateral, because there are four parts. The first is Scripture, God's Word. What does the Bible say about a situation? The next is tradition. And by tradition, we do in part mean the traditions of your family and your legacy. What does it mean in the Maddox family to be a good person of character? What does it mean in your family to be a person of good character? What are the lessons you've learned through traditions? But more than that, when Methodists talk about tradition, what they mean is, what are the traditions of the church universal? What are the church fathers and mothers, philosophers and deep thinkers from the past said about it? How does it equip us to understand our life, our understanding of Scripture? The third piece is reason. I told you, don't check your brains at the door. The Methodist Church affirms that our capacity for reason is a God-given gift. 
And there will be times where we will take a rational and developing perspective on our world and on our humanity and how God is at play in them and use that in tension with the other three items. And the fourth is experience. Experience is a part of your lived life. Where have you seen God? Where have you experienced God? The affirmation of the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, is that we would have experiences of God that would affirm what we read in Scripture, what we've held to be true in tradition, what our reason tells us to be true. And maybe, just maybe, with a little bit of space for mysticism, we will have experiences that transcend that. Why doubt? Because it's normal. It's normal. If you've ever raised a toddler or maybe a 46-year-old, their first question is what? Why? Why? Eat your vegetables. Why? Brush your teeth. Why? Go to bed. Why? Right? It's a fundamental skepticism wired into who we are. We'd like to know the rationale and motivation for the instructions and patterns in our lives. So it is normal to then question patterns of our faith, especially when we feel like there is a disconnect between our lived experience and what we hold and affirm to be true. Why is that? And the tension is often is that there are times when doubt as a human expression, whether it's about faith or about anything else, can paralyze us. Do I or don't I do the thing? And a paralysis of analysis about how to get through a decision can lead us to the point where we just feel far more comfortable not deciding to do anything about it. I know I get there all the time. And so sometimes in faith, we come to a point where we say, I'm not willing to commit to an understanding or an idea or the belief that God loves me because I live in this tension. Do I? Don't I? And I'm paralyzed by being stuck in between. Why a series on doubt? Because it's scriptural. First story we tell in the Bible is the serpent who plants doubt in the story of Adam and Eve. God told you you would die if you ate from that tree? Is that true? We spend a whole lot of time celebrating the work of Father Abraham and his many sons and daughters. In fact, six different times in the rest of Scripture, it is attributed to Abraham from the book of Genesis that his faith is of virtue and his trust and obedience in God is a high mark of his faith and his life. And yet he regularly questions God and makes choices that seem to suggest he doubts God's specific promise. And then in the Gospels, one of my favorite passages of healing is of the father of an epileptic child. This child struck by seizures. And boy, if you've got family or friends who deal with seizure disorders, you feel so helpless. You feel so helpless when they're in the midst of an episode father who's watched his child from birth deal with seizures comes to Jesus in the gospel of Mark and says if there's anything you can do please heal my child Jesus's response is if I can all things are possible for the one who believes and then Mark chapter 9 verse 24 says this I believe help my unbelief and out of that statement of confidence, out of that statement of belief, healing is made possible in the life of that man's child. Worked into his confession is doubt. I believe, help my doubt. 
It is possible, even in the story of our gospel, for these two ideas to walk hand in hand, wrestling with doubt, finding faith. When Adam surveyed his congregation, the number one question amongst those who had doubts is, is there a God? Why God in the first place? And for many, the tension of that comes down to what they feel is a conflict between science and faith. Does science replace the need for God? Does understanding things like medicine and the age of the the world and and the existence of, of, of things like atoms and neutrons somehow eliminate the need for a narrative that our scripture provides of God as creator and sustainer? If we know how the sausage is made, does it require God to be a part of the process? The thing I find fascinating about that tension is that until the last century, most of the people dedicated to exploring questions of science were people of faith. They were motivated by a desire to better understand the world that God was a part of. Even Copernicus and Galileo with their struggles with the church had a deep love for God and God's kingdom. And there are plenty of modern scientists who are doing fantastic work. I love science with that sense of creative energy and understanding what is a a part of this world of ours. And I don't see the threat, personally, more on that in a minute. And the other thing that seemed to be at root with this question of is there a God has to do with this fourth piece in the quadrilateral, experience. What if it just doesn't feel like God is a part of my story? What if it feels like God is distant or absent? What if the hard times far outweigh the good ones? What if the grief is so much more than the joy? What if my longing for the impossible things that our worship band sang about never came to fruition? One of our upcoming sermons is answering a specific part of that, the doubt that comes from what happens when prayers go unanswered. But I know that another part in my story and in my journey and a a, a part that I've been vulnerable about at different points in our time together is a question of mental health and to realize that my physiology and my psychology are such that they often lie to me about my experience. And that depression and anxiety are not rooted in an absence of God, but in that sense of what does it feel like to live in this body, in this time, and in this place? These are real and powerful questions. They'll manifest in the rest of our series that if you answer the question, is there a God, what then does it have to say about how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to treat our neighbor who gets into heaven, how should we pray, what happens when we die? These big questions are rooted in this first big question. Why God? And as I told you, I don't want to give you a whole bunch of philosophy. I don't want to quote a bunch of scriptures at you. I'm going to give you my sense, my experience of where I've seen God and my convictions. Why God? First, I believe in the beauty of and the rational order of creation. This world is miraculous that surrounds us. 
I'm deeply in love with creation from the places I've visited and even the places I call home and my experience of the creation of God here in Valencia in the last year and a half has done nothing but reinforce that. I get why the psalmist in his best attempt to capture in song and poetry a sense of the majesty of God's presence writes these words in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And in considering the vastness of those ideas, of the night sky, of all that surrounds us, in Psalm 8, the psalmist writes, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all these things which you have set in place, what is humanity? What am I? That you are mindful of them. You are mindful of me, human beings, that you care for them, that you care for me. Oh, you can read throughout the Psalms these words of life, these words of God for the people of God, and so we say, thanks be to God. The power of the imagery and the poetry in that doesn't escape me. Like I said, I have science joy, not science fear. I believe in the, the beauty of creation, but I also appreciate all that we have come to learn, particularly in the last 50 years, about the power of the cosmos and our place in it. I've shared before just the absolute sense of awe I have when I see pictures from the James Webb Telescope to consider the galaxies and suns that we are now able to capture in HD, to appreciate the vastness of the universe and even as a big linebacker of a human being, just how tiny I then become. I love the macro expression of creation. When things seem big, when I can see the systems and the connections, when I can think of things like national identity, or our connection as a church, and our connection beyond the church, when things get bigger than me. But I also love and am fascinated by the idea of the micro when things get really small and our understanding of things like atoms and DNA and the things that make up this body of mine. To know that they are a part of a larger system and they are a part of a consistent system that you and I are all a part of does nothing to undermine my convictions about God's presence in my story. Rather, it's a cause for thanksgiving for me to consider just how fragile life can be, how corruptible things like DNA and cells can be, and to know that, at least for today, I have been sustained. Two little analogies that work for me that remind me of the vastness, the order, the macro and the micro. The first is sunsets. This picture was taken on the way back to El Paso on our family trip this last week. It was in the middle of a spectacular fight with Pastor Camille. <laughs> our kids had on their noise reduction headphones and they were passed out in the back seat and Camille and I could not agree on a single thing about how that day and in large part how that trip had gone. But in the midst of that, I went, hold on just a second. 
it was a reminder to me of the vastness and beauty that in the midst of my silliness, in the midst of my need for forgiveness, in the midst of trying to be right about everything all the time, I just need to stop and appreciate. We had a sunset better than this one last night if you were paying attention. Go on Facebook if you haven't been yet today. I'm sure some of your friends and neighbors posted their favorite pictures of it. I know, I saw them. It's a powerful reminder at the end of the day as we transition into darkness of the potential for beauty and of a new dawn and a new day. That's a big thing. The small thing that reminds me of the beauty and the order of God is these little plastic pieces right here. I love Legos. There you go. I love that we're going to watch the Lego movie as a congregation in a couple of weekends. I'm excited for that. Let me tell you why I love Legos. I've watched documentaries on Legos. I've watched YouTube videos. I know how they're manufactured. I know most of the classic sets and even some of their values as collectibles. I've put together a number of sets, mostly Star Wars, I will confess. I have bulk Legos in my house. Unassembled, unassorted pieces. I know how it works. I understand the mechanics of it and where it has come from. I know why it works that attaching certain pieces of certain colors together in an anticipated and instructed pattern will produce the, the ship, the car, the boat, whatever it is I am trying to build. I'm so grateful for the, the creativity that has gone into that. But the thing that strikes me the most is when I put some of my unassembled Legos down in front of a child, I just begin to get creative. me is a little red switch that should be up. It has tape on it. There we go. <laughs> so even though I know how the Legos are made, what can be done with them, I find myself fascinated when kids get creative with them and they make something out of love. Because it reminds me of the universe and God because I understand atoms, I understand reproduction, I understand how things are grown, how we eat, how we live, how we die. But to see something made with love is a gift to me. Quick word about the experience of God in my life. Why God? Well, because we have music. Music is one of those things that speaks to me in a powerful way be it just the capacity of somebody to create song around chord, around melody, around harmony, to be able to move somebody to it, to find in the greats of old power and experience of God. I hear the voice of God when Pavarotti sings Nesun Dorma, 
talks about waking in the morning to victory. Vincero, vincero, vincero. I hear the voice of God in contemporary artists. Childish Gambino. Jelly Roll. Folks who remind me of humility and of God's grace. Why God? Because the experience of God in my life, the calling and conviction that takes place in the church, that the church has forever been for me an opportunity to remind me that it is not my work to make God seem a little more human-like to everyone else, but to help elevate our understanding of who we are as human beings to be a bit more God-like with and to one another. The experience of God in my life. God has provided me an identity and an accountability beyond myself. It's rooted in my baptismal identity. I was baptized as a child and so too were my kids. It's one of the patterns and practices of Methodism and puts it at odds sometimes with some of our other Christian brothers and sisters who believe in a believer's baptism. But I'll tell you this, for the whole of their young lives, our kids prayed the same prayer every night before they went to bed. Thank you for today, thank you for tomorrow, thank you for our baptisms. As a way of reminding Maddie and Jackson and even Andy that no matter what happens, I've been claimed as a child of God. Why God? Because of the experience of God in my life. And then the third part is why God? Because in my experience of God, the God of faith, the God of love, the God of life in your lives in the work of the church, in the convictions that I see in this place, the daily lives you lead in your schools, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your homes, your attempts to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk closer to God each day. To have seen in your eyes and in the eyes of the churches that I've attended and served a hope for compassion and the need to be in service to others. To see the generosity of a community in something like the miracle offering at Christmas Eve. But perhaps most poignant today is when I've seen God at the end of it all. Pastoral ministry has provided me the opportunity over the last 24 years to be a part of, what did we figure out, somewhere north of 300 funerals and memorial services. Sometimes it's just because a phone calls come in and said we need a pastor. Other times it's a family I've known for more than a decade and I've had the chance to sit with them at the close of their life. The witness of those who go with grace, dignity, and confidence gives me strength. I mentioned the Ewell and Rasner family as I was getting started. This church has been praying for my cousin Corey Ewell for the better part of nine months dealing with an unexplained and not entirely understandable cancer for a long time, twice subject to a bone graft and stem cell treatment to try and address that. Was home for Christmas Eve, back in the hospital by New Year's. Received word during the last service, just about the time I sat down after my sermon, uh, that he passed away this morning. His doctors had run out of answers what to do to fix it. Why doubt? Because there are times in life where we look at the stories of the people that we care the most about. And there is a stamp in my childhood when we lived in Phoenix near my cousins, Corey and Kevin. 
where we saw them every week. Swam in their pool, played on their schoolyard, told stories together, played games together, wrestled together. An intensity of experience that's writ all over my memory and my life. Why doubt? Because there are people who say, what about a God who does impossible things? I said at the first service, my family's a bit of a spiritual anomaly. We cover a whole lot of bases. My mom's sister is married to a, a Mormon bishop, bishop of the Mormon church. Corey's dad is the retired pastor of one of the largest non-denominational Bible churches in Scottsdale. His brother Kevin, my other cousin, continues to serve that church in pastoral ministry. My mom's side of the family, she was married to a Methodist minister. She's the father to a Methodist, or she's the mother to a Methodist minister. She's the mother-in-law to a Methodist minister. So the extent to which we had that pray for it and believe dynamic going, as a family, we had that covered. And yet still we invited your intercession and hope. Why God in the midst of doubt? Because I know, I know, there was not a day in the last nine months where God was not with Corey. I know, I know that there was not a moment where he felt like Jesus was not there and for him. That's why God for me. Friends, let's pray.